Welcome to the 42nd episode of Tokyo Alumni Podcast. Today, our guest was raised by an IBM family in around the world, including Westchester County, New York, and Paris, France. She came to Tokyo in 1984. She then stayed in Tokyo for a year and enrolled in Sofia University's intensive Japanese language program. She then returned to the United States, where she graduated from Princeton University in 1992, with a bachelor's in modern East Asian history and a minor in women's studies and teacher preparation. She taught third grade in public New Jersey schools for four years and then enrolled in Columbia University Schools International and Public Affairs and married her husband, David Cole. While earning her master's degree, she started her family and quickly realized that she would not be able to devote herself 100% to both her family and her new career, and she decided to stay home with her children during the next 13 years. During this time, she tutored, she wrote curriculum for the New York Times, became a volunteer breastfeeding counselor with La Leche League International, and it was during this time that she found her calling, wanting to empower women to know and feel comfortable with their bodies, and she started her journey to become a midwife. She graduated from Westchester Community College with her RN license in 2012, worked in labor and delivery for several years, and then earned her master's in midwifery and her CNM license from Frontier Nursing University in 2017. Since 2018, she has been working for Planned Parenthood in New Rochelle, New York, caring for women at all stages. Her daughter, Alexandra, graduated from Brown University via Zoom this past May, I guess because of COVID, and her son, Ben, begins college at Northeastern University this fall. Welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Thank you. So um, just an array of things to talk about today. <laughs> we had quite an extensive pre-interview, actually, right, where we talked uh, everything from uh, Tokyo in the 80s to philosophy of education to uh, women's rights. Um, so um, I think we will, in general, try to go chronological, but through that sort of uh, journey, we will touch upon current events as well as, you know, where you are currently in regards to, you know, your professional and personal life. Um, so first, let's talk about 1980s. Um, we've had so far, I think only about two guests from the 1980s. So um, it's definitely a time that I think we don't really have much information, actually, when you Google it or, you know, YouTube it. So you are part of this IBM family. So if you would like to maybe explain to anyone, you know, in the international community, especially with ASIJ, what exactly happened in ASIJ during the 1980s? Yeah, so um, ASIJ was a flourishing international school um, at the time when we got there. About, uh, I think, 400 families from the Westchester and Connecticut area moved in en masse in the fall of 1984, which means that at every grade level of the school, there was an influx of about 10 to 15 students. Our graduating class had 125, and I think it would have been closer to 100 if we hadn't showed up. And so, yeah, it really, it was big. Uh, it really forced the school to um, expand in a lot of ways. It started a lot of the uh, expansion that happened afterwards in terms of the buildings, um, but I think also of the curriculum. Several AP classes were added um, in the mid-80s because there was much more demand for it with these families coming in. I, I don't know for sure, but it probably changed the character a little also in terms of the mix of 
American only born families versus the other international families or the students there who had one Japanese parent, one inter- you know, foreign parent um, who decided to send their kids to an American school rather than the Japanese system. And, you know, in, in later years through alumni things, I've become much closer with a lot of those students who are half Japanese. But at the time, there was definitely this divide, like the half Japanese kids hung out in a lump and the new students hung out in a lump. Um, and we definitely didn't mix as much as I wish we had. Mm. Um, so, you know, I don't know how much that was happening anyway. Again, I wasn't there before. We definitely changed the character of the school just by our sheer numbers and by our decisions of whether or not to socialize with who we did. In the end, of course, it all, you know, by the third year, we were all mixed in and and then the bubble went away. I graduated in 87, but um, in the in January, February of 88, IBM took all those Japanese employee or, you know, employees in Japan and moved them all to Hong Kong because of the way tax laws were creating much too much expense. Um, And Mm -hmm. so the bubble disappeared. These like massive demographic shifts with international schools is definitely a really interesting topic because sometimes when the school is very small, you know, like a school like um, uh, there's a school in Busan where I I think they had a lot of Swedish and uh, Finnish students there. And I think literally just the shipping it was something to do with the aircraft carriers when this yeah when their businesses shifted it was like the entire school was like almost shutting down anyways bringing it back to SIJ you mentioned there's that point where a bunch of IBM uh, kids go off to Hong Kong uh, sports was a huge part of the ASIJ culture um, mm. and we kind of laughed that we felt like we were the only American high school where the A plus AP students were also the football players and the cheerleaders. Our track team was enormous. Um, Mm. And in track, we dominated. In football, we didn't because we played against the American base teams. And they were even more big, burly American (laughs) than we were. Um, But we definitely, yeah, the, the, the sports ethos that sort of like the Friday night lights was Mm. definitely a part of ASIJ culture at that time. We didn't have a marching band, which which ASIJ now has. I went back three years ago for my 30th reunion, and we went to the Spirit Day homecoming game thing, and there was a marching band, and we were like, what? (laughs) We never had that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. um, (laughs) You graduate from ASIJ, you go off, uh, not the States, but you stay, so... This was a very unusual decision, especially back then, especially someone who's not Japanese, at least as far Japanese. as I know from your bio, right? <laughs> and <laughs> so. looking at me, you can see, yeah, there's not, yeah. A, not a speck of that in my, uh, in my DNA. I think I was raised in a kind of unusual American family that really valued international experience, part of the reason that we chose to go to Tokyo. Um, and my parents had moved us to, to Paris when I was a young child. Um, and had made the decision of instead of uh, moving to the suburb where all the American families were and sending us to the American school, had decided to move into an all French suburb and send us to, to the public French schools. Um, mm-hmm. So I had already had that kind of experience. Um, and arriving in Tokyo, going to the American school, it was an amazing experience. 
Um, one of the best things that ever happened to me in my life was the American school in Japan. But as I neared my senior year, it was really clear. We were talking earlier. I, my parents had gotten us into a, an all Japanese tennis club, a Keio University alumni thing by sheer luck. Um, so we had this one piece of our lives on the weekends where we were having a, an experience where we were with Japanese people trying to use our Japanese, um, helping them with their English, you know, going out drinking with them, what, just getting sort of a cultural friendly Japanese experience. But the rest of my life, I might as well have been in America. Mm. I took the train to school. I mean, I took the train instead of the bus to school. So that was different. Um, but I took the train to school with my group of American friends. And we spent our entire day English in American culture, except for my Japanese class and my Spanish class. And, and then we stayed after school for sports and for drama and for whatever. And we went home and stayed up late doing homework. And then we got up and did it again. Um, mm -hmm. And I felt like what a waste to have spent three years in Tokyo and basically have not learned very much Japanese. I did Japanese one, three, and five. So I got through what were considered five years of high school Japanese and I could mm. barely speak. Um, it's such wow. a difficult language. You know, I could, I could gurgle my way through ordering food from a menu kind of was like the extent of what I could do. Um, and I just, it just felt like such a waste. So when I got my college acceptance and saw that you could defer enrollment, I was like, well, here's my chance. So, you know, there were probably about five or six students of, of half Japanese heritage who stayed on in Tokyo. And there was one other American student who I was friends with, but I didn't even realize he'd stayed. Like we found out later that we were both there and we hadn't stayed connected. Um, Cause you know, we didn't have like Snapchat to keep ourselves together. And um, halfway through the year, like I said, the Tokyo uh, IBM moved all the people to Hong Kong. So my parents left. Um, and we were lucky enough that because of this Japanese tennis club, we knew some people. And I ended up moving in with a Japanese family and, you know, learning how to berate their 10-year-olds in Japanese and watching TV with them and just being like completely immersed in Japanese culture and language, which was a super, super lucky, wonderful thing. And do you feel like when you went to college the next year, so you, when you went to Princeton, was, did you have that whole reverse culture shock experience where you're like, oh, oh yes. wow, why is everything so big? <laughs> and um, I don't know what you know, I think the biggest <laughs> cultural shock was um, I was so used to being stared at and being sort of an object of curiosity Mm. And coming back to the U.S. and just being like an ordinary person, I think the most shocking piece of it, the most difficult piece of like not being special anymore and yeah. just being a person um, more than the big spaces and the shopping. Like I was ready for those things. Mm. Um, they prepared us really well for the culture shock of getting to Tokyo. And I think they prepared us really well for some of the culture shock of getting home but I was not at all prepared to just be ordinary. So would you say that that experience of sort of not being special anymore, it, it was more of a negative than a positive? Or were you kind of like, okay. That definitely was. Caring. Definitely was. And it was also, you know, going from being one of the smartest kids in my school to being not the smartest kid in the school, right? And from being somebody who spoke four languages, um, who even in Tokyo at Amer the American school, that was kind of special. 
to mm. being like, you only speak four languages. My roommates all spoke more than four languages at Princeton. Wow. So it was just like really this entire sense of being special from both the experience in Tokyo and being at a small high school to being mm. just ordinary. Yeah, that was a pretty negative experience. I think that's a good cautionary tale too. I think anyone from international schools, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we were all small fish, not small fish. We're different fishes, but in a small pond, you know. That, and I actually, it, I think that happens even not just coming out of Tokyo. My daughter was a big fish. It was a big school, but she was a big fish at our high school. And then she went to Brown University and she was a tiny fish. And that was a difficult thing. And I think we actually encouraged our son, not that Northeastern is not a great university, but he could have applied higher and really reached for something. And we encouraged him not to because we wanted him to continue to feel like he was sort of one of the top or at least near the top and not just like, I'm so lucky I got in kind of experience. Yeah, that's a great point that the whole, yeah, the whole process of just what school you attend, I feel especially is so nuanced coming from a place like ASIJ, right, where mm -hmm. it's like, on one hand, it's a great school, but it's like, on the other hand, as you said, because it's so small. I know that that seems to be, I think you nailed it. Um, it's funny because, you know, even though we, we graduated from different eras, that seems to be the biggest issue people have. Right? They, they, they leave ASIJ with some sort of status, some sort of feeling that they have, they're entitled to something. And then they arrive to college and they're like, wow. And I think you touched upon a really interesting point earlier about not wanting to be an expat and, you know, wanting to sort of really immerse yourself with Japanese culture. Do you feel <laughs> like... During your time at ASIJ, were there any um, organized trips or like were there schools that ASIJ collaborated with to sort of have the students there um, experience Japanese culture more? So I think in the elementary and middle school, there definitely was. There was a lot of push to do that, push to like learn, you know, Japanese sports and to, I don't know, there, there's much, I think at the lower level, they do it much better. At the high school, there was really nothing except for there was like a student group that was, you know, like the Japanese experience group or something. Um, there was, I took a class and I should, uh, Dick Gallagher whose uh, son graduated around your time, I think, right? Gallagher sounds familiar, yes. Um, so he, he was a teacher I did not like personally. Um, <laughs> he, he gave me a C in American History AP. I have issues. But he taught a class called Japan Seminar that mm. was open only to students who had reached, you know, Japanese three or four or beyond and who had lived for a certain amount of time. And it really delved into the sort of deeper understanding of Japanese culture, not the caricatures and the stereotypes, but really getting beyond that to a deeper sense of what Japan is and what being Japanese means. Um, and even though I didn't meet the um, living years requirement, I had done all the language. Um, and so he let me into that seminar. And it was an amazing class that really, really helped me to understand much more. Um, but it was only open to people who'd already begun delving. It wasn't for everyone. I was not aware that class had so much history. I was actually part of that class too. Um, really? Yeah. Um, okay. It was taught by a Miss Kathy Krauth, who's actually still there at the moment. Okay. It had uh, morphed itself to um, 
it was an honors class, but there were no requirements in regards to language or like living years. It was just mm. an honor social studies. And it culminated with a, a trip to Okinawa at the end of the year. Wow. Yeah, and, and that was actually probably one of the main reasons why I took it um, <laughs> was for the trip. Because you got to go to Okinawa, of course. Yeah, and uh, but yeah, it's still well and alive, I, I want to say. So yeah, I wasn't aware that that is- uh, That's amazing. I don't know what year he started it. I think it was pretty new when I took it, um, but uh, that was kind of the only thing. And most of my classmates, um, certainly the ones who came through IBM had zero interest. They mm. were there because their parents had brought them there. Um, some of them studied Japanese, some of them didn't even bother. And they were you know, interested in going right on with their- American AP studies and playing their sports and getting into college. Wow. And really not much interest at all in the fact that they were actually in Japan. So That's I think I was definitely an unusual person <laughs> in that sense. Yeah. And especially because you were only there for, was it three years? So actually, well, four years, three years at, at ASIJ and then the fourth year at Sophia. That was, that was my goal. And so, you know, we, we, we didn't even talk on this uh, earlier when I went into education, my second year teaching a Japanese family moved into town and mm. they happened to have a child in my grade. I was teaching third grade at the time and they put her in my class so that mm. I'd be able to help her with the transition, which of course, I think I spoke to her in Japanese for about three days before she was fluent in English and didn't need me anymore. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> it was sometimes good. When I started tutoring in the U.S., I actually concentrated on um, the Japanese families in our area because there are a lot of them and um, tutored a lot of Japanese kids in their American school subjects. And that's because of your linguistic ability and, and your background. Right. I could communicate with the parents, mm. you know, whose English wasn't necessarily very good, but they were sending their kids to American schools. Um, and so the kids were, you know, good in English, but the parents needed like somebody who could speak a little bit in Japanese and who could sort of navigate their cultural understanding of the U.S. a little bit more. And I could put up flyers in Japanese to say I can tutor yeah. your kids, you know, <laughs> so they're like, "Ooh, I know what that means. And, you know, speaking of, of teaching, um, we were also talking about this off air a bit. Not many people go into teaching, um, although some of my guests have been teachers, but you were saying at least within your um, classes of, of graduates right in 87 yeah you weren't familiar with with, with really no one who, uh, who went in no that way and so, it wasn't my I, it wasn't my plan either <laughs> it happened to me um yeah i think the 80s were this crazy time of economic growth um and hope in the u.s and this time when japan was completely at the forefront all the news about business, right? Japan rising, Japan, Japan, Japan. Um, and I think a lot of the IBM families who brought their kids made that move because they wanted their kids to get a leg up for the business world. And I mm -hmm. think those kids completely bought into that whole idea. Japanese and knowing some Japanese culture and language will help me get a better job, make more money, you know, move ahead in the world. Um, that was definitely the ethos of the 80s. And I think it's what most of my, you know, some of some of the kids I went to school with ended up being professors um, and sort of moving up in the world in the academic area instead of in business. Um, but a lot of people really, um, really used, you know, it was their goal too, and they did it quite successfully, used their mm -hmm. Japanese experience to set themselves apart from others. 
um, and get themselves into finance and business and software and whatever it was. And so teaching and sort of public service was definitely not a um, one of the larger themes of our years at ASIJ mm. or college or anything else. Well, you said you kind of fell into it. So, so how, how did that happen? Um, like what, what was the original plan then? If, if yes. First? So the original plan was um, economics and finance. And I almost went to Caltech because I thought I would get a better economics degree there. I never took a single economics class at Princeton. Um, I loved the, the history program, which I told you I got a two on my history AP and a C in American history. It was not where I was going, but just, you know, sort of those few classes that changed the way I saw things, um, which is the goal of college, I think. But while I was at Princeton, um, Wendy Kopp, who started the Teach for America program, was yeah. two years ahead of me at Princeton, and Teach for America was her senior thesis in the um, School of Public Affairs. And so when I was a sophomore, she wrote that thesis. And then she organized, because she decided she wanted to turn it into something real, she organized like a teach-in day where she got as many Princeton students as possible to get into a school for a day. Um, And um, my boyfriend at the time was also a graduating senior in the School of Public Affairs, and he knew her well. Um, And so I had conversations with her about what she was doing and why and what was wrong with the education system and how to get smarter people in. And I was completely sold on the idea. And it was early enough that I didn't have to go through the Teach for America program. I, at that point, could get into the teacher preparation program um, and get a full teaching license. So I took that on as a minor um, and, you know, decided that's where I wanted to go with my life. Um, but it was really Wendy doing that whole Teach for America thing that gave me that push. Wow. Again, I mean, happenstance, you know, like being in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Earlier off air, we were just talking about sort of the importance of, you know, being in the right place at the right time, even more so, right, in the pre sort of internet era. And yeah. Uh, having uh, her at the same school at the same time. And two um, years ahead of me so that it wasn't happening when it was too late for me, you know? Yeah, that's just like, wow. So that takes you into teaching. You know, your philosophy in regards to just your professional work has always revolved around people, right? You And later on in your career, you worked in regards to, you know, if, if I, if I understood right, the, there was these various degrees mentioned in, in the bio, which I w- wasn't quite <laughs> sure about. So actually, maybe if you could maybe briefly elaborate on sort of the midwifery. Right. So um, midwifery in the U S it depends where you are in the world. Um, midwifery in a lot of the world is a, um, a non- schooling kind of thing where you um, work alongside a professional as an intern and learn the profession and then start working yourself in the more sort of high education value developed world. uh, There's definitely educational track for it. So midwifery is mostly a nursing a higher level nursing degree, like a a nurse practitioner uh, in the US, although you can do it without nursing. It's a master's level degree in most states in the United States, although it is state by state licensing, so it can can differ. 
um, in New York, it's a master's level and will probably soon be a doctorate level profession, that the training is very similar to the medical training of an OBGYN um, Mm. minus the surgery. Doctors are surgeons and nurses and midwives are not. So there's no surgical training. Um, But there's sort of all the the medical training that goes in with it. Um, But also, I think more than in the medical field, and you were just touching on this, is um, uh, the idea of teaching and education, right? We don't just take care of people, we teach them how to take care of themselves. And so it's, you know, sort of an empowerment, just like teaching is, it's, it's a, a personal empowerment profession, where our goal is to almost make ourselves obsolete, right? Mm. To, to get people to be so well able to care for themselves that they don't even need somebody else to care for them. Um, just yeah. like we're teaching our students, right? To be such good learners that they don't need us guiding. Yeah, I mean, although I, I try to make sure they never know that, you know, that's a goal too. <laughs> right. Let them come to it on their own that they don't need me anymore. <laughs> well, that's in parenting also, right? You, you oh. never tell your kids that your goal is for them to like think that you're an idiot, <laughs> but that is in fact your goal, right? <laughs> I, I wish I, I you're not I, there I, yet you're not there yeah, yet you'll see I'm, I'm we'll not see. your yeah. goal is to make your kids smarter than you and capable yeah. and able to spread their wings and fly and not need you anymore but you can't tell them that because then they're like <laughs> what you're gonna throw me out of the nest <laughs> that's, a, that's a great point <laughs> but like this um you know when I was looking at the years right where you got the um I was saying midwifery I guess mid midwifery it's midwifery but that's okay yeah it's a midwife so, but yeah, just because the way English language works. Yeah, stupid English language. <laughs> so, so um, the uh, you you got these pretty late in your career. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it, it's quite inspirational. I feel always kind of like so. I've been teaching now ten years, and I already mm-hmm. kind of feel like when people say, "What are you going to be doing?" I go, "Well, probably going to be teaching or be an admin." And like, I can't really vision. You know, my, like going outside of this comfortable box. So when you went into it, did you just go head in or like, was there a little bit of like, oh, maybe I should like, you know, go back to school because that's what you're doing before, you know, you were a a full-time mother and other stuff part-time. Right. So I think, I think this kind of later life transition, and we didn't talk about this, we were talking about sort of women and the decision to stay home and how men generally don't do that. And I think um, the later life career transition is a much easier thing for a woman than for a man, um, Mm. mostly because our society has trained men to see themselves as the breadwinner, right? The stable, you know, socioeconomic piece of the family. Um, And so pulling out and starting over is not necessarily an option when you've been trained to sort of be like, I always have to be the breadwinner. Mm. I can't take a break from that. Um, Whereas for women whose work life, um, especially those of us who make the decision to to drop out of the paid workforce um, and be in the unpaid workforce for a long time, the decision to do something different um, and start over is much easier. I did look into going back into teaching. I spent a lot of time in my children's classrooms and Mm -hmm. I got myself provisionally certified in the state of New York 
to go back to school and I started interviewing. And then I realized that education had changed so much in this country, or at least in this state, that it's not what I wanted to be doing. I didn't mm. like it anymore. Um, it's yeah. so much testing and so little teaching um, and so much, you know, have to stick to a specific curriculum and so little chance to be, uh, you know, to like let curiosity rule. And yeah. for me, education is about curiosity. It's not about the actual stuff that gets taught. Um, and I just, I couldn't do it. So um, I, I joke that all my later degrees were all on matrimonial fellowships, right? I had a stable working partner who mm. kept the lights on and kept the mortgage paid and kept the bills, you know, and saved for college. And so I had the luxury of going back to school and starting over, which not everybody has. Um, but I am happy to say that I, there are at least three or four women I know who then went on to get their next degree and start a new career that they're passionate about because they saw me do it and were like, oh, that's a yeah. thing you can do. I could do that. So, you know, I think I was sort of inspirational, so to speak, to at least a few people who were like, oh, I don't have to just go back to what I did before. I could start something new. And I think for my kids, I'm hoping that it's taken some of the pressure off of them. You know, mm. we have this, you see this, you're a high school teacher? Yeah, high school. High school, right? So the, the pressure these kids have to find the right college and get into the right college and to know already before they apply for college what they want to do with their lives is incredibly strong, maybe stronger here in Westchester where I am. I don't know how it is in Korea, a really, really debilitating thing for a lot of kids. And to be able to say to my kids, look, the best, the most useful degree I got was the one from community college, not the one from Princeton. And when I decided that I wasn't doing the right thing, I started over. And that's a thing that you can do. So choose something right now that you're passionate about but mm. don't look at it as I have to choose the right thing for the rest of my life. That's a great because point. It yeah. isn't necessarily. I think the pressure is, yeah, I, I, at least my observation has been that is the trend. That is, uh, it's yeah. not just where you are or where I am. It's the com competition. And, I, and we see it even with the scores. I mean, I remember, um, you know, there was a time where if you had, you know, 4.0 or 4.1 and decent SAT or right? like a 1440 you were applying to Ivy League schools like and you know right. and, and someone will pick you up but you know uh, I guess I can use this example because I'm not using any names but I, I did have a student one year uh, you can't make this stuff up she had a 1560 4.3 GPA this student I don't know if I said she already but this she, um, <laughs> she was you know basically extracurricular wise you could Basically, it was as much as possible. I, I don't want to get much detail, but you know, someone who would, you know, very involved, you know, right. in, in extracurriculars. And yeah, she did not get into most of her first choice school. She got into first one. So it worked out. Which is kind but, of amazing because the like coming from Korea should have also given her this big leg up, right? Yeah, and this was all in her second language. And it's kind of like, I, I couldn't get 1560 in my, you know, first language, essentially. So, like, <laughs> right. yeah, it's, it's very, very competitive. And yeah, and they're asking, you know, my son just started college um, in the engineering school, right? So he was asked to know before he even applied for college what he was going to do with his life. Yeah, and it's just, and I, and I think you're correct, too, that a lot of young people, have this assumption that that's the new normal that at 17 yeah. 18 
if you're going to be a nurse, you know. know. Exactly. And it's, um, you know, I hopefully with time, and I said, I think, and I think there's something you, you could relate to maybe at a personal level quite a bit is for better or worse, 70% of what a kid, I guess their belief system usually comes from their homes. So it, right. ultimately it's what are the parents saying? And um, that's why at least as a school or as a teacher person, I try to make sure it's to, to talk to other people around them. Cause at the end of the day, that's who they're listening to, right? Is their parents, their best friends, the counselors can say things, right? Yeah. And teachers can say things, but we're just, we're only part of a much, much bigger uh, puzzle. Um, On that somber note. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And another, uh, (laughs) another fun topic. Um, This idea of empowering women. And um, actually, before we get specifically into that off air, we spoke a bit about, you know, this idea of women staying at home, men going to work and out. Women sometimes change, right? They, and, and I'm seeing that actually a lot with people I know around me who, you know, they were never going to quit work and then they had a child and then I talked to them and they go, well, actually now I want to stay home. And you were saying you had sort of I had similar the same experience. experience. So what I did, um, I had the same experience. I thought it was really, really important for me as a woman to have a high powered career and to be, you know, in the workforce doing something important and for my kids to see me doing that, right? Mm. To understand, because like you said, the belief system, right, comes from what they see in their family and around them. And I wanted to model that for my children. Um, I was in my master's program doing international affairs, planning to go into development work, uh, probably in Eastern Europe or Africa, And I had my first child and the thought of being away from her for a couple of weeks while out on an assignment or even all day, five days a week with somebody else caring for her was just so foreign to me. It just didn't make sense. Mm. Um, And so while the intellectual side of me said, you should be working, you should, somebody else should care for her and she should see you being a strong, powerful woman. This other piece of me was like, I just want to be here with her. I want to see her take her first step. I want to hear what her first word is. I want to hold her. I, you know, and um, I was, I was, you know, lucky enough to have the luxury of being able to follow my heart and do that. Not everybody has that. You know, I think in a lot of ways I, I ended up modeling for my kids, maybe even better stuff because I went back to school when they were in elementary school and they saw me working hard through some other degrees. Um, and I went back to work and really followed my heart into what I wanted to be doing. So I created a different reality and a different modeling set for them. But we were talking earlier, I had plenty of friends when I was home during that experience in playgroups who were miserable at home with their children. They mm. were used to being uh, in charge of their environment, of being in control. Um, I told you this earlier, especially the lawyers who were like mm. in control of everything and being at home with a bundle of crying stuff that you can't predict and that you're not in charge of was incredibly difficult for some of these women who had that as their basis of self-worth. Um, mm. And for them, being home with a child was the worst thing they could possibly do. Um, and most of them ended up going back to work pretty soon. So, you know, I, for me, sort of choice has always been the big thing, right? And so I work for a pro-choice organization now. Um, yeah. But 
but the choice to work is not the only choice. So there was sort of in the, I think the, the 60s and 70s women's rights movement was like women have to be empowered to be able to choose to work and get out of the house. But that yeah. wasn't a choice. That was a now you have to have a different reality. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, and I wish more men had this choice also, I think it's happening a little bit. But to yeah. truly have a choice to say that either the decision to stay home with your child or the decision to have somebody else care for your child and go to work are both good choices, mm-hmm. right? That you, the one that's right for you is the one that you should do. And I, I wish more men could see it that way, that that you should have the choice to be able to say, you know what, my heart is pulling me to be home with my kids and my wife or my husband is going to work and I'm going to stay home, I wish was a choice for more people. Yeah, that's a great point that I mean, I guess I don't mean to like sort of just oversimplify, oversimplify it by saying to each, you know, her own. But I think you're, you know, quite accurate to sort of say that there's just such a range in regards to how people are going to change their lifestyle after they're first born. And right. It's it's very sobering too to hear from you how you've seen sort of this evolution of perspective because even people around me I think there still is that that pressure um, which is almost kind of like the reverse pressure that existed before so in the past it was like you know if you're a woman you got to stay at home right and then women fought and fought lots of people you know through example and you know there was a lot of sacrifice made and you know now women are not quite thriving. I think we can't quite say that yet, but let's say they're doing much better, right? Every decade or so. But on the flip side, there's now this pressure that's like, you must, you know, it's it's almost like you're betraying. The lean in, right? The lean in. So it's it's nice to, I I think you summarized it well, that it's more about choice. It's like, if you want to stay home with your children for 20 years, that's fine. If you have the resources to do that. Yeah. Right. We're talking right the upper white upper middle class ethos. True. Yeah, uh, you know, nowadays I work with lower income women who don't have mm-hmm. the the option of staying home. There that's not a possibility. But for those who are lucky enough to have the luxury of it, to be able to really have the choice to say, you know, it's not like mommy wars. It's not you made a bad decision, I made a good decision. It's we all made decisions that were right for us at the at the time. Yeah, um, that was terminology i think that i was reading the the mommy wars where there's sort of this dichotomous stay home stay home moms versus working moms who seem to like all think that the others are monsters yeah and and their goals are really the same though (laughs) so that's what makes it such an ironic yeah but um yeah it's especially intriguing because your job directly or some of your work directly relates so much to women giving birth so you have two kids one um finished brown or is still at brown she finished brown yeah she zoom she zoom uh covid graduated um and she's actually in israel now she speaks uh fluent hebrew and arabic and she's teaching she's teaching english to um right now arabic speaking students in nazareth and then she'll be second half of the year teaching english to hebrew speaking kids in tel aviv wow so that's uh so we managed to get this like yeah we managed to get the like it's important to be international and multicultural and to give back to the community. We managed to get that into our kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was kind of, you read my mind. Uh, that was the next question really is, do you feel like having that international background yourself, uh, even though your kids were raised in the States, like how do you try to create 
Or how do you try to create an environment that is attracting? Yeah, that was that hard. Person? That was yeah. hard. So we actually moved, almost moved to Shanghai when our kids were really little. I, I made a huge oh. push and it fell through last minute. So it didn't happen. Um, but it was part of my goal was to have my kids grow up in another country and be bicultural. But um, we, when the kids were little, I spoke to them in a variety of languages on a rotating basis so that they wouldn't be, you know, English speakers only. And although Japanese was not one of them, yeah. <laughs> well, I did my best. Um, Limitations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a lot better at Spanish and French than I am at Japanese. So, you know, those are the languages that were being spoken um, along with some Hebrew. But we also did a lot of traveling with our children. Um, starting when they were very young and most of our friends were like, not uh, not getting on a plane with the kids, not going to a foreign country. We're like, yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. And always made an effort, you know, just like I did when I was in Japan to not be tourists so much, um, mm -hmm. but try to find a way into the culture where wherever we were, be introduced to somebody who lived there and get into their homes and be a little more inside than outside. Um, and that was actually the program my son did before he started college. He did a great program called Where There Be Dragons that mm. pushes these young people to learn how to um, travel by being in the culture instead of being outside the culture. It was a, a pretty cool thing to watch him get inducted into. But yeah, our kids have very much been raised with the idea that American culture is a culture. It's mm. not right. It's just a yeah. culture. And there's lots of other ways in the world to live and to be and you can choose. So your your oldest is, is in Israel now. And um, yeah. the, the younger one is in college. And so my family, um, my folks are in Tokyo, um, but all three of us boys are, uh, I think, in Kansas. I should know where my brothers live. I think Kansas, uh, California, and I'm in Korea. Okay. And my wife is from Michigan, and she's obviously here. And uh, her sister's in New York. So both of our families, all five children, are far away from their parents. So do you ever feel as a parent, like, on one hand, you want your kids to be, right, like, global citizens but on the other hand you want them to be close by so like how do you balance Definitely. That, um you know? it's really hard so my parents ended up with one in tokyo one in new york one in the state department traveling around the world on assignments wow. Yeah. and one on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon. And I know that that was hard for them. And it's definitely a source of frustration between my husband and me right now, um, mm -hmm. because he has less of the desire for his children to be global citizens mm -hmm. and much more of a desire for them to be close to home. Um, yeah. And I have the competing, right? I do want them close. Um, I do have the luxury of if they end up far away, we have enough money that we can travel and see mm -hmm. them regularly. Part of my daughter's desire to be in teaching is if she does end up in Israel, she'll have summers off. So she mm -hmm. could come to the US with her children, and they could know us, right and spend time with us. But um, it's definitely right, the pride that I have in what she's doing and knowing mm -hmm. that she's happy doing what she's doing and she's sort of following the my philosophy makes mm -hmm. me super proud, but having her really far away is really hard. Um, I yeah. think WhatsApp and you know those mm -hmm. kinds of things that allow us to 
to FaceTime and see each other makes it a lot easier than it was for my parents. Mm. When we were far away and a telephone was the only way to be in touch. Um, I think technology makes being farther away from each other a lot easier. But there's definitely, um, there's a lot of tension between those two competing desires for sure. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's, 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 it's just like a, and it's almost like something you, you can't win no matter, no matter right. what happens. No matter right, what happens. right. Yeah. Because uh, the world, the world is just so big. It's so, the so The world dang is so big and it has so much to offer. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, that, that's really interesting to hear the, the competing perspectives. And uh, it's probably similar with you too, with, with ASIJ. A lot of my friends are far away from their parents, but when mm-hmm. I do go visit um, uh, my my wife's friends in Michigan, and they're all you know within an hour from their folks, right? Like I, I I do see the benefits to that as well. Like like I, I can see how that in regards to happiness and you know stability has its advantages, but it's it does. You said it's like, but you also want global citizens, right? It's like there's yeah. seven billion of us, and I don't know. It just seems so such a waste, right, for someone to be confined one little area. I'm but, sort um, of hoping that my um, that my kids will do, you know, sort of the hybrid model of like some years abroad and some years close to home, so that it's so not the, all one or all the other, and and sometimes they're doing the complete global citizen thing, and other times they're we get to know our grandkids really well and we have that sort of, you know, they have that stability of a place that, that feels like home. Who knows? So um, as we approach sort of this tail end of our, the interview, um, <laughs> yeah, I like to ask the guests at the end, like what is coming up in their lives in the next few years. So if you want to just sort of take the mic and tell us what is happening. In- What's happening in the next few years, adjusting to, to living our lives without children again is, you know, big piece of um, sort of rekindling the marriage that turned into parenting, but now is back to being a marriage um, mm-hmm. is going to be super fun and interesting, I think. Definitely, you know, continued work and getting better at what I do, because I've only been a midwife for like two years, mm-hmm. getting better at that. I think probably a doctorate is coming up in the next few years. Wow. Um, <laughs> if, only so that, if only so that my children's spouses have to call me Dr. Cole and not, you know, Kari. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I think a doctorate might be coming um, and um, a move into more teaching. Um, you know, sort of more formal teaching. Right now, I do a lot of teaching one-on-one with women, um, but teaching either nursing students or um, midwifery students, taking a, a, a slight step back from patient care and more back into the teaching role, which is one that I just super adore. Wow. So we, we just, uh, just seems like we can't keep you away from the new new degrees and certificates. Oh, no, um. no. I'm a, I'm a serial student. <laughs> I'm a degree. Um. Uh, what do you call them? I, I, I like count my degrees. I collect. Yeah. I'm a degree collector. <laughs> so, um, it's uh, yeah, def- I wish you the, the best uh, in regards to yeah, that PhD. You. And um, yeah, it was great talking to you, a plethora of topics. But anyways, <laughs> uh, it was nice having you. Uh, this is episode 42. And uh, Kari, so yeah, it was nice talking to yeah, you. Yeah, so nice to get to know you, Nick. And good luck with all of your endeavors. Thank you very much. Thank you.